HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. We are back after a summer break, and I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and we're live from Brooklyn today in uh, one of the most um, un- unlikely sweltering days of the late, late, well, end of summer. Summer's officially over right now, and I sure hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we've had a little bit of a summer break here at Heritage Radio, and we're back for a fall season. And um, I got to say, we couldn't have... Uh, picked a better time of year to start um, this this conversation we're going to have today about this uh, book that I'm holding right now. But also, I really, really hope that you've been enjoying tons of farm fresh food right now. It is the peak of harvest season here in this local uh, food system. And uh, I, for one, have been really enjoying all the sweet corn, gorgeous tomatoes uh, right from the vine. Um, but whether that's from uh, your small CSA farm or farmer's market or from the supermarket or maybe from your own garden, actually not if it's from your own garden, but good for you if it is. But, uh, you know, let, it's time to like, you know, step back for a moment and think of all the work that has been put into bringing that food to harvest. Um, I am really, really excited to have an author on air who has written a book all about um, one family farm that he followed for one whole year from fall harvest season to the next fall harvest season. It is called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. The author is Ted Genoways, and he's on the line right now from Nebraska. Hi, Ted. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on air, Ted. Um, This is a really, really exciting uh, book and it comes out this Tuesday, so we're getting the sort of sneak peek here, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Well, congrats, um, Ted. You're also the author of the Chain Farm Factory and the Fate of Our Food. Um, you've written a lot about this topic of American agriculture. Um, for you're a contributing editor at Mother Jones, The New Republic, 
Um, you've received a fellow from the Guggenheim Foundation, and you're a two-time James two-time James Beard Foundation Award finalist. Um, so you've written a lot about farming in America. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, um, first of all, I mean, if you're based in Nebraska, it's hard in a, in a state like Nebraska to to miss the importance of, of agriculture. But but for me also, as, as a writer hoping to, to reach a national audience, I, I see just how often the, the farmer and and agriculture in general are are missed as part of the, the national conversation. So I my hope is that that through my work I'm I'm able to shine a light on, on some of those things for people who don't live in, in agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not part of our sort of popular culture, perhaps. I think that's right. And mm-hmm. and even in the to the extent that it is, I think it's often um, steeped in a lot of, of misconceptions or at, at least outdated ideas about what agriculture is like. There's been such a change in farming practices in general in the last 30 years that um, any, any notions that we may have of what agriculture is like from even a couple of decades ago um, are, are almost certainly uh, incorrect at this mm-hmm. point and outdated. Okay. I'm a, I'm I'm sensing a, a maybe a source of tension here. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> I think it's true. I mean, I, yeah. you know, one one of the things that's definitely tr- true is that um, that farmers that you know the overall narrative of of the last fifty years for farming has been that that the push has been toward increasing the size of mm-hmm. farm operations. Industrial farming, right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, and what that means is not only increasing the size of the individual farm, but that means increasing the amount of work that, that an individual farmer is expected to account for. Mm-hmm. A lot of that has been accomplished with mechanization, okay. um, with everything from industrialized uh, planting and harvesting to irrigation systems and so on. But farmers are the ones who individually take on the debt of, of uh, acquiring that equipment and maintaining that equipment and operating that equipment. And so what's happened is that farmers have a lot more financial obligations right. than they've ever had. Um, so they're seeing, the ones who have to invest in this new equipment and then right. hopefully see the payoff. That's right. right. And so we're, we're at a moment right now where there's more farm debt than there has been at any moment since the, the farm crisis of the 1980s. And every single farmer is out there trying to produce at maximum capacity just to stay ahead of that debt. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, speaking of the farm debt of you know the 80s and and so forth, I just want to also point out that Willie Nelson is a big fan of your book, um, and he calls it a universal story of family farmers and all they're up against. Again, Willie Nelson is a tireless sort of um, pr- uh, supporter of of farms and and their 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 issues. Um, yes, and and obviously. Uh it, it means everything to me to have <laughs> that that kind of endorsement, and um, I 
uh, unfortunately was not at Farm Aid last night, but was enjoying uh, watching the simulcast. Oh, and, that's great. Um, it's, yeah. it's great to see the sort of support that, that uh, Willie Nelson and Neil Young and John Mellencamp continue to give to, to farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, okay, so you, for this book, This Blessed Earth, uh, you follow one family in Nebraska um, throughout one whole year. And so this is a, I, I'm very curious how you, how you chose them because I know you've written a lot about farming um, in America, but if you had chosen any other family or any other place or any other year, maybe even the next year, so you did 2014 to 2015, what if you even had, you know, followed the same family, same place for another year? Would this have been a totally different story, you think? I think it's entirely possible that it would have been. I mean, it's, um, you know, the obviously farming is cyclical, and, and so there are periods that are up and periods that are down. Mm-hmm. And it, it may not be radically different from year to year, but, but certainly as, um, as it happened, you know, I happened to catch this family at a, at a moment when the whole of agriculture shifted from a period of, of real boom times mm-hmm. to right. bust. And oh so gosh. catching them at the cusp of that change um, was you know, from the narrative standpoint, was fortunate because it was a chance to see what happens when the, the market factors suddenly shift and a family is scrambling to, to make sure that they're making the right choices to keep up. Right. So they're at this precipice not only in, um, so, so the Hammond family um, right. in Nebraska, and um, you caught them at the moment where commodity prices uh, for grain had seriously dropped, and they were trying to plot. They took a, a few calculated risks, um, and then that, that, that sets up with this huge suspense in your, your introduction, I got to say. I was like <laughs> dying to find out if these things paid off. <laughs> So it's a great place. But also, uh, I want to mention um, that you really, I mean, when we talk about a lot of uh, issues around farming, like subsidies and, you know, crop prices and so forth, we tend to think of like broad strokes, very unpersonal things. But um, you definitely include a lot of the personal, uh, you know, issues around farming. And I, so I was going to say, um, you also caught the Hammond family at this point where they were sort of passing on the hand uh, sorry, the ownership of the farm to the younger generation. That's so right. Papa, you know, Rick Hammond was sort of kind of, um, co- uh, you know, coaching the next generation, which is That's right. a big change. Yeah, and, yeah. and this, is, this is a major issue in, in farming right now because there, there are so few farmers who are of a a younger generation right now. It's mm-hmm. you know it's virtually impossible to get started in this sort of large scale. Um, yeah, that's one farming. thing I was wondering if, too. <laughs> yeah, if, if you don't already have land, if you don't already have equipment, um, you know, you think of you know what the Hammonds have is thought of as a as a midsize operation because they're able to maintain it with a few family members and and then the equipment that they own. But if you think about trying to acquire a couple thousand acres of land, um, acquire, um, you know... By buying it. The, yeah, yes, investing the, in the it. The equipment okay. that's involved, the bins that are required, the, the barn, overhead. 
Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about, yes, millions of dollars of overhead. Gosh, and yeah. And it's, it's impossible, really, for someone who is in his or her 20s to go into a bank and say, <laughs> you know, I'd like to have millions of dollars in loans in order to start up a farm operation at, you know, one of the most uncertain times in generations. And so what that means is that the only place where there is this kind of rising generation is on these longer-term family farms. And, of course, um, not everyone from the new generation is deciding that they want um, to take on this obligation and Mm -hmm. this risk themselves. And you think about, I mean, I'm absolutely amazed that, that there's anyone who makes the choice to continue with the farming. If you think about the the fact, the temptation, really, of, of Leaving. Being, yeah. being able to say, you know, I could either work from sunup till sundown every day to have just enough actual liquid assets to kind of get by, or I could sell all of this and have millions of dollars in assets. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wow. a huge temptation. Yeah. And many people, of course, over the last 30 or 40 years have cashed out, have decided that, that the legacy, as important as it is to them, just isn't sustainable anymore. Okay. Um, but what that means is that this moment of succession, as they, as they call it in farming, is incredibly volatile and just kind of a touchy time because yeah. people who have been doing it for 30 or 40 years are handing it over to their kids who may have been doing it since they were small children but really haven't had to had the, have the uh, decision-making responsibilities right. and, and all of the weight of, of running the operation themselves until now. Right. So and can, it's, mm-hmm. it's always a tricky time, um, yeah. and and certainly, um, you know, it's a moment that that is imbued with more significance now than ever because every person who fails or every person who decides to leave, um, you know, it it leaves fewer people from that next generation on the land. Yeah, um, it's. And, and sometimes, you know, maybe the younger generation would decide to try to continue, but, you know, for whatever reason, they fail. And that could Absolutely. also happen, too. Definitely so. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, th- this, this particular moment is, is especially um, fraught because mm-hmm. of, of exactly what you were saying, that, you know, commodity prices were incredibly high for a number of years and and people who were selling mm-hmm. who were raising corn and soybeans and selling it um, were seeing all kinds of profits but of course what they were encouraged to do was to put that money back into circulation by buying equipment right um, which often they didn't pay for in cash but simply used the money that was coming in as collateral to take out still more loans and so the oh young people who were coming up may have gotten started at that time um, and are servicing now debts that are larger than their parents ever saw, or they may be coming into the operation at a moment when the stakes are incredibly high in such a way that, that it gives them pause and mm-hmm. that, 
that you think, well, I'm not sure I can navigate this at this incredibly difficult moment. And so it it is um, a unique uh, moment in time because it's not just uh, as a the usual pressures of taking over yeah. the operation and not wanting to let the previous generation down, but this rising generation that is taking over the farm right now is is actually facing the greatest challenge in a generation. And if you're not entirely sold on wanting to take over the farm operation in the first place, trying to take it over uh, at a moment when it's facing more problems than it has in 30 or 35 years, I think it's it's daunting. an especially difficult choice to make. That's incredibly daunting. And it sounds like there's just more and more complexities that maybe their elders hadn't had to deal with. So they wouldn't have, you know, gleaned this knowledge through a normal, like, um, you know, sense of apprenticeship and uh, learning. Um, these are new challenges, too, in addition. Abs- well, and, and especially just on the technology side, I mean, things are are so different now from from what they were even ah, 10 years yeah. ago mm-hmm. um, that, yes, it's not, a, it's not a case of being able to simply take over a turnkey operation and say, you know, I just keep doing what my parents were doing. Right. In fact, it's, it's radically different from what was being done even 10 years ago. And the changes that are still happening year to year are so rapid that if, if one is not really extremely comfortable and well-versed with, with extremely complex technology and database management and all of those sorts of things, then it, it's daunting on that mm-hmm. front as well. And I love how your book puts all of this into a very human context, too. Um, the, the, the psychological, uh, you know, all the things that, you know, as people we go through when we're trying to figure this out. Uh, a lot of the times we think of like farming, you know, in these like technical terms, but um, your book really brings that to light. I was really fascinated to learn that there's like psychologists you mentioned and uh, lawyers that specialize in the in the succession of farmers from generation yes. to generation. So, um, uh, well, family okay. dynamics are are an incredibly important part exactly, of yeah. all of this. Um, and you know, you think about. I think any of us can relate to the difficulty yeah. of, of like managing family dynamics right, in the right. first place. But if you layer onto that, um, essentially being in a family business together, um, but also being responsible for a, a legacy and a heritage that extends back generations, there's the sense not only of... No kidding, yeah you know, trying to make it work from mm-hmm. day to day, mm-hmm. but also this kind of looming threat that if you make the wrong decision, you're not just letting down right. your family members, but generations of ancestors as well. <laughs> I hate to say you're letting down Willie Nelson, too. <laughs> and who wants to say exactly. that? <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Oh, my goodness. Um, Ted, there's so many things I want to ask, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break, and we'll be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. All right, we're back chatting more with Ted Genoways. He's the author of the soon-to-be-released This Tuesday book, This Blessed Earth. And it, it follows um, a year in the life of an American family farm in Nebraska. Um, hi, Ted. You still there? I am still here, yes. Awesome. Okay, so... So you're okay. So the Hammond family faces a, uh, a threat um, when you begin their their journey during the year of 2014, which is that uh, grain prices have just dropped because of a surplus of a, a higher than expected yield. Right. So, so essentially, there's too much grain now. The price is down. Could you? Do you think you could just like sort of break down how exactly the 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 Board of Trade, you know, how do they fix prices? Right. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's always um, a, a stressful time at this time of year that where we are right now mm-hmm. um, in general because the there's always, you know, a projection for what the market um, for grain will be and what the supply will be based on what's planted, based on some mid-season surveys, mm-hmm. estimates, but then it's it's only at the very end of the season when we've got a sense of what the weather has been and what the... So right um, about now, yeah. Yeah, and exactly, you know, what, what the, the tests of fields have shown that give us some sense of what to expect for the harvest. Mm-hmm. And so... That's always um, a stressful time in the first place, but at this particular moment um, in in 2014, the market was just starting to turn. Um, we had come out of this period of of really artificial demand that was created first by the implementation of the renewable fuel standard, which meant that we had to have all sorts of renewable fuels as part of the national supply um, by 2007. And what that did was create artificial demand for uh, ethanol. Ethanol, yep. Yeah. And so so that pushed prices up. And then um, not long after that, there was a drought that that created an artificial pressure or a momentary pressure on okay. supply, mm-hmm. and so prices were sky high. Yeah. Um, after a generation of being at two to three dollars a bushel for corn, it had gone as high as eight dollars a bushel. And as I said before, everybody had looked at this moment and said, "Well, you know, we can. We suddenly have disposable income to buy equipment. Um, 
and more land. Congress made the decision to um, extend tax credits that encouraged people to spend and to take on more debt. And, of course, many of the lending agencies were using this land that was soaring in value as, as the collateral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everything seemed great. Yeah, <laughs> and then things, things the drought ended. Right. The renewable fuel standard was revised downward, and prices dropped in half in a period of about six months. Right. And so while farmers had their crops out in the field in, and growing in 2014, they, they watched did the prices right. come down and down and down. I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, they did everything just, you know, just as well, if not better. They had That's higher right. yields, you know, yep. by stroke of luck of weather and so forth. So, so farmers are, are dealing with um, fluctuation um, in prices, but also, you know, weather, two things they can't control. And um, it's very challenging. I, I think that it's really interesting, if I may read um, from your prologue, um, you know, in regards to, um, it seems like almost like you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. So if you do have a good season for your crop, then the prices go, you know, down because there's less demand. And then if you don't, you have a really bad year because of some sort of drought then, um, or like your own whatever farm um, has a really bad, I don't know, blight or something, then, you right. know, you're darned. But anyway, um, you know, you write that um, thinking in the head of Rick uh, Hammond, so in your heart of hearts, though you'd never admit it, not even to your neighbors, you pray for a root warm in Chile or hail in the open plains of Illinois, a late-season catastrophe unforeseen by USDA. You hope for what the traders call a market recovery, knowing that what that really means is that in order for you to succeed, someone else just as careful as you, through no fault of his own, has to fail. So that is how you recover, is by somebody else's loss. That's That's right. And and that's um, one of the the kind of unspoken parts of, of farming and certainly farm communities, this recognition that, you know, while we often talk about uh, the farm as this last bastion of, of people pulling together and, and looking out for each other, the reality is that the system is set up in such a way mm-hmm. that neighbors are competing against neighbors and that what you're trying to do all the time is figure out some way to get a slight edge over your neighbors, whether that's reducing the costs of your operation and by cutting the amount of what are called inputs, mm-hmm. you know, everything from pesticides and herbicides to fertilizers and so on, or by increasing yield. Okay. Um, and so it's, it is, in fact, a system that pits farmers against each other. And it and it often, I think, creates an environment where farmers are reluctant to to organize on their own behalf and to cooperate in ways that, that might benefit them because in the short term, they're always facing the, the problem of competition. Right. So what changed? I mean, obviously, we've had uh, family farms. You know, we've had farms <laughs> since for right. the, the dawn of agriculture. Um, 
what has conspired to create these conditions that are very antithetical to what sounds like, um, you know, the philosophies that most family farms, uh, or, or, or if not philosophies, the regular day-to-day practices that m- many of these family farms perhaps founded on, on, you know, the first generation of the Hammond farm, for example. Right. Well, I mean, my opinion is that what happened really is um, World War II and the Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. And what that means is that uh, during World War II, in order to make sure that we had an adequate supply of food for uh, troops who were all over the world, there was a lot of, of support, government support that was implemented for agriculture and a lot of of land that was put into production to make sure that we could at least control food supplies and food prices, that that was not something that we were contending with at the same time that we were fighting this war on multiple fronts. Coming out of World War II, a lot of the of, of businesses in general had expanded um, to match the needs of the war efforts and were f- suddenly facing the possibility of of massive contraction. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that that lots of companies who had expanded for the war efforts now turned their their know-how and their equipment to, toward other their factory forces right. toward other production. Okay. And so, you know, some place that had been manufacturing tanks starts manufacturing tractors. Sure. Um yeah. and mm-hmm. and what this also means is that the companies like Monsanto and DuPont that have been manufacturing munitions mm-hmm. have to suddenly come up had something. this yeah. m- massive oversupply of nitrogen-based compounds that they were looking to figure out a way to repurpose. And, you know, certainly manufacturing fertilizer is, is one great option. Right. And... Many of, of the secretaries of agriculture following World War II looked at the U.S. and said, we have less land mass than some of the countries that are emerging as our Cold War enemies. And what we need to do is, is put all the land that we do have available into maximum production just right. to compete. Mm-hmm. But okay. as we not only competed but outcompeted our enemies, the notion soon became, well, maybe this is a tool of foreign policy right. where we can not only control the, the global markets and keep prices down to keep our enemies from, uh, from competing with us in economically, but we can actually win friends, maintain friendships, or at least maintain a balance of power by being the ones who control the world's food supply. Yeah. It, and so everything became much more about foreign policy than it became about food production. <laughs> and when that's the mentality, yeah. the, the food side of things sometimes get a little out of whack. Sure. And also the human and the, you know, just general economics of the farmers <laughs> maybe it was a little left to the wayside in those decisions. Absolutely, and I, I think that that's one of one of the real challenges that exists is that that you, you've got an industrialized agribusiness force on one side, 
that is thinking about the bottom line and is not really concerned about how this affects farmers. And especially, I think that for the most part, agribusiness thinks that if there are fewer farmers, that means that there are fewer farmers to have to deal with. And and so in some ways, it it actually aids their model if there are, are fewer farmers huh. who, yeah. who are involved sure. in the process. But on the other side, as there's been kind of this awakening in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Farm um, and so forth. Yeah. Tw- you know, toward, yes, organic and animal welfare approved and all of these sorts of of concerns, I think there's been a tendency to lump the farmer, who is as much a victim of the system as anyone, maybe more, Mm. in with the people who are the captains of agribusiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's some place where I would love to see a change in the conversation to recognize that a farmer who's trapped by this system Mm -hmm is not someone who is complicit or who is often willingly participating, but is actually somebody who is just trying to stay afloat and trying to hold on to a long legacy and very often would prefer to be doing things quite differently. Of course. And I think that those are natural allies for the food movement and people that we need to bring more and more into the conversation. I think that's a really, really strong point, and I, I really want to thank you for sharing that and sharing the perspective of this family and as a case study, but as a, you know, as a whole, everybody here who is still on a farm, um, for the most part, um, loves the work. It is, you know, it's a, it's a tradition. It's their heritage to be in this work. So it's something really important to remember that these forces outside their control, it's not like they're... Not their idea. <laughs> so, right, exactly. I mean, absolutely. You know, let's not, like, say demeaning things of, of the feedlot owner, but maybe the feedlot system and so forth. It's absolutely, exactly. you know, it's everybody here is um, just trying their hardest. So, um, unfortunately, oh, my gosh, that's about all the time we have for today, <laughs> Ted. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. This is a really important book, and I hope that um, we got to shed some light on it. But I hope that everyone who is curious now um, about whether, you know, the fate of the Hammond family and, uh, you know, or what are some of these uh, innovations that may steer the way for the future of um, the American Family Farm. Uh, we'll, we'll buy this book. So thank you so much, Ted. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the conversation. Great. It's a wonderful book. All right. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Love and
like this before. 